Highlights. You are listening to a bonus episode of This Week in Marvel. I'm Ryan, a.k.a. Agent M. And we are celebrating Star Wars! With the upcoming release of Star Wars, The Rise of Skywalker in theaters December 20th, we are here in full Star Wars mode. We had our special big talk last week. We have another one coming later this week. And today we are thrilled to share our interview with writer Gary Whitta. And I didn't do it alone. I was there. But really, I was just riding sidecar because I was joined by Matthew Rosenberg, writer extraordinaire of many comics, including some Star Wars books, and Tucker Marcus, my co-host on Marvel's Pull List, who is a ginormous Star Wars fan in and of himself. Uh, so Gary Whitta is known in the world of Star Wars for helping develop the story for the 2016 film Rogue One, A Star Wars Story. He's also the writer of Marvel's comic book adaptation of Star Wars The Last Jedi. He's a Hollywood bigwig screenwriter. He penned the films The Book of Eli and After Earth. He um, is ton of years of experience as a journalist. He was editor-in-chief of PC Gamer magazine. I currently enjoy the dulcet tones of his British accent on Kind of Funny's podcast. He does uh, every Widow Wednesday. So without further ado, please enjoy our chat with Gary Widda. All right, we are here in San Francisco. Gary Widda, we are sitting across from each other at a wonderfully bizarre, esoteric space here in San Francisco. How are you? I'm good. Yeah, I feel like audio listeners are missing out on this yeah. uh, very interesting environment you found for us to podcast in. Yeah, uh, all, all credit goes to Becca, our audio uh, producer, for finding this space. Uh, but I am not alone here with Gary. No, Tucker, you're here. Hi, Ryan. Hi. And of course, we have Matt. Ro I don't know why I said of course. It's not like you're on every episode. No. Hi, I've Matt. been on the show like once. <laughs> Matt Rosenberg writer of Punisher and many other comics. Uh, you've been on the show multiple times. Yes, sure. Don't fib. First things first, Gary, I want to know, what is your Marvel origin story in the sense of how did you first become a fan of Marvel? I didn't grow up reading uh, Marvel comics at all, nor DC comics. I grew up in the UK where we actually have a very, very different comic scene. Uh, UK or British readers, of a, listeners of a certain age will, will know uh, comics like the Beano and the Dandy and Wizard and Chips and all kinds of weird comics that I used to grow up on. Not, they're not superhero comics at all. We had a character, there was a character called Billy Wiz and he could run super fast. Um, <laughs> and we had our version of Dennis the Menace and, and then there was like a, there was like the rebellious school kids and things like that. But we didn't really, I didn't really grow up on superhero comics like Heroes with Capes. I, I actually discovered those through the movies. Like I think probably the original Superman, which was what, 77, 78? I would have been like five or six years old. That was really my entry into uh, the comic book world and i used to go see it's interesting remember the old spider-man tv movies of that era from the 1970s quite well they actually ran theatrically at the cinema in the in the uk and i would go to the movies and watch those i i had no idea because here they were on there was a, a period where they were on a block with incredible hulk uh, I right. believe it was Incredible Hulk and Amazing Spider-Man. And then there was like a Doctor Strange TV movie that they tried to make into a thing. And that didn't work. But like during that era, it was just a TV show. We had the Incredible Hulk on TV. Um, and I grew up with whoever it was who played that TV Spider-Man. Again, for me, that was never on TV. We, I think they were like feature length TV movies that I actually went to the cinema to see. They were, they were, they were like theatrical feature films for us growing up in the UK. And the Peter Parker, he wasn't like a he was like an older guy. Like it wasn't like the high school Peter Parker that we that we know today. Yeah, it was. There it, it was a lot of apocryphal. I mean, obviously it was all officially Marvel, but the versions of the characters that I grew up, like David Banner and like the weirdly old Peter Parker, like they were all strangely kind of off-brand versions of the Marvel that has kind of coalesced into the one that we know today. Gary, like come going from that, 
angle of things, your early stories, like what was your first creative endeavor? Like where did you start writing? I would write, uh, I grew up playing uh, video games back in the, like the early eighties when I was a kid playing video games, they didn't really have stories like they do now. And I would kind of fill in the blanks myself and kind of come up with my own headcanon version of the missing stories of the games. And I would kind of write them as like fan fiction in my head. And some of them, I, some of them I actually would write my, my first experiment with short stories, like writing kind of video game fan fiction. For what and games? Then, um, a lot of the, I don't know if you remember the old Infocom games of the 1980s. I grew up on games like Zork and mm. um, A Mind Forever Voyaging and, and things like that. And I would write my own kind of fan fiction versions of, of those stories and my parents, God bless them, let me watch pretty much anything I wanted to watch on TV. And the person at the video store didn't care what I checked out either. <laughs> so I was completely without any any restrictions or any limitations. And so I watched George Romero's Dawn of the Dead when I was like 10 years old. And it and it really, I, 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 what's the, what, do you have like profanity rules on this podcast? I don't know. Uh, we'll bleep it. Okay. All right. Well, it really f- me up <laughs> yeah. and, and uh, to this day i still have like quite uh, my only recurring like horror nightmare that i have is like zombies are chasing me wow because i watched that movie when i was 10 years old and it just buried itself in my subconscious i still can't watch that movie i haven't watched it in like 30 something years because i know it will just bring all my scary memories back but for a while i was obsessed with zombies and i actually wrote my own 13 part wrote and drew myself my own 13 part uh romero inspired zombie comic book epic in the exercise books that they would give us at school and one day my parents found them and was so disturbed uh, sorry the teachers at school found them and were so disturbed by the level of blood and gore they called my parents in for like a parent teacher they were like well, we're a little bit worried about like some of the things that gary's drawing in his comic books uh and so that's kind of how it started yeah I, when you talk about john of the dead i just think of the color palette used for like that movie uh that and day of the dead and like the blue zombie like there's some zombies They're very are, green and blue, blue yeah and it, it is nauseating yeah and it's disturbing and i think that's so effective you go from the black and white original which is in itself so great and so upsetting for a lot of reasons and then you get to this visceral nasty yeah. look yeah there's something it's, and it's not just those movies there's something about the whole aesthetic of like 70s horror like not just Romero, but like if you if you go back and watch some of the old Cronenberg movies, like Scanners and stuff like that. Oh. I don't know. Just, I mean, the seventies was just aesthetically horrible anyway. <laughs> with, even without, like you just watch like a drama set in the set in the in the seventies, and it looks like a horror movie because oh my god, that carpet is so terrible. And who picked that wallpaper? But there's a lot of like a lot of early Cronenberg and a lot of Romero stuff from like the late seventies. There's a there's a Cronenberg movie called uh, The Brood with Oliver Reed that is absolutely one of the most messed up movies I've ever seen in my life. If you want to watch like a really, really creepy messed up like movie of that era, go watch The Brood starring Oliver Reed. Wow. Really messed up. That's my recommendation to you. (laughs) What I'm curious about uh, with anyone who works in a creative field is like the moment when you realize that that could be your job. Going from being a fan of something or just writing it in your school books or something like that to when you had that I'm I'm 47 years old and I still don't know if I fully accepted <laughs> that this is my job or if I can yeah. really sustain it. Yeah, and it's like one of these days. I you know every day I kind of feel like the, someone's going to pull the rug out from me. You know, eventually. I I remember what the influences were that made me feel like I knew that this is what I wanted to do. 
and that you know everyone says Star Wars, but yeah, like I'm a child of the of the late seventies, early eighties. Of course, Star Wars was a big influence. I'm very much a child of the original trilogy, and those movies were like. I remember, I remember the specific moment in Return of the Jedi when Lando kind of like flips the, the the Falcon over, and they're suddenly they're flying inside the Death Star, thinking like whatever this feeling is that I'm having right now, I want to make that for other people. That mm. sense of like awe and magic and wonder. I, I often say that like movies, I, I think this is true of comics and and all kinds of this kind of form of escapist entertainment, particularly but particularly movies and Star Wars and things like that, and you know the, the MCU and all this kind of stuff is like the closest thing that we have to actual magic in the real world, mm. that ability to kind of transport us to other places. And I grew up in the kind of, kind of the, again the '80s Spielbergian era where everything was like you know the Spielberg face where. Every movie, have you ever heard this? Every movie has the Spielberg face. It's like there's a moment in every movie, Close Encounters or E.T. of that era, where it's usually seen through the eyes of a kid. Jurassic Park has it when you first see the dinosaurs. Sam Neill does the Spielberg face. It's that moment of awe. Yeah, it's that, it's that kind <laughs> yeah, of yeah, yeah. <laughs> awe and wonder moment where like your hair's being blown back and the lights are in your face. Like Richard Dreyfuss in Close Encounters. And there's that moment of like you're just seeing this magic. There's all this there's something that is beyond your understanding, and that's the Spielberg face. Right. And I want to. You know, my whole career is like I want to give people the Spielberg face as as much as as much as possible. Uh, Gary, yeah. one of the, one of the reasons why I'm such a big fan of yours is you've worked across like almost literally every kind of media that I can think of, whether that's film or video games or TV or so much. And Matt, I want to ask you about this as well. And, you know, we have a conversation about this, but like, is a story a good story no matter what medium you're telling it in? Or do the demands of a, of a video game story versus a screenplay change how fun, like on a fundamental level, how you think of it from the very beginning? Like if you're thinking of a good story and you know it's going to be a screenplay do you think of that differently than if you're thinking of a story you know it's going to be a comic or something yeah i mean to some extent i mean i do think there are there are certain kind of universal truths about you know character and theme and plot and things like that that are probably universally true across any medium Mm -hmm. you know whether whether it's a comic book or a tv show or or a video game or a movie or whatever you want to have compelling characters you know you want to root for the characters you want to you know there, there are certain kind of archetypal storytelling truths that you know we all kind of try to adhere to but then when you get into the specific medium i mean this is something i ask myself a lot now when i have an idea for a story or a character like a germ of an idea begins to kind of pollinate one of the first things i ask myself is well what is it Mm -hmm. like what's the best medium that this story might be expressed in like film is my first language that's that's what i've done most most work in but i've now done comics and television and there are there are commercial reasons to think well maybe this is more of a a this or a that i mean a lot of times just because film is so difficult Mm -hmm. i I wrote a novel back in 2015 which was originally designed to be uh, a feature film but i just felt there was there was i've been doing this this job now long enough to anticipate all the reasons why you know, studios will say no to things. It's too expensive. You know, there's no, it's not very marketable. It's not commercial enough, whatever. But I really wanted to tell the story. So I just wrote it as a book instead. And that was actually much easier to get published than it would be to have made the feature film. I'm, for me, I'm still satisfied. I got to tell my story regardless of medium and the story found an audience and people liked it. And at the end of the day, I'm no less satisfied with it as, as a novel than as a feature film. Right. But that was just a product of like a, a commercial reality yeah, um, yeah. i mean to go the other way uh you know when i adapted the last jedi 
I didn't have any flexibility, nor, nor what I want to. I didn't want to mess with Ryan's intent or his story. You know, I wasn't going to go completely change it. But there were certain things that, A, things in the movie that I wish had been done slightly differently. And it was my opportunity to kind of not correct them, but just do it my way. Yeah. This is what I, like. I, I love Admiral Akbar. I personally didn't love that he got blown out of a window without any kind of a final moment. So I gave him one mm -hmm. in the comic. Just little things like that that kind of just pleased me personally. <laughs> but then also certain, you know, every every medium is different in its visual language and uh, you know a, a trick that ryan might have used in the like if you, for example when when ray and kylo have their what i call their force time yeah. moment when they communicate via the force ryan does this very very clever trick where even though they're in two separate environments he said he shot those two separate scenes so that their eye lines match up so it looks like they're looking at each other even though they're not physically in the same scene that doesn't work in comics and so i had to find another way to render that gag that would work in a sequential panels format so think so sometimes it's just it's just you know trying to find ways to tell the story that is just best suited to the strength and weakness of the, the particular medium you're telling the story in yeah yeah matt what do you think um well i think that was a good answer <laughs> yeah. um one of the things that i always think is interesting especially working in american monthly comics predominantly which i do is the sort of weird set of demands that a comic brings that when i started i got my start writing comics, I found super engaging and fun because you have like guardrails, like you have to do it in 20 pages, you have to end it on the cliffhanger so they'll come back and spend the four bucks again to get the next issue. A lot of books that I love and a lot of my favorite writers, you know, like a Brian Vaughn or Robert Kirkman, like Bendis, like these are guys who excel at giving you a page 20 where you're like i need to know what happens next like i, I don't want to wait 30 days and it's such a art form that is specific to comics and i guess tv in a sense but it's fun now to work in other mediums which i'm doing more and see how like these things that i was like this is helping me as i start because it's a, a narrow pen right. to be like oh it's it's fun to be able to extend a scene for five minutes because it's good and not be like, well, I only have two pages to get this done because it's a comic. Right. Um, so in some ways, like the physicality of the medium is, you know, doing doing horror in comics is very hard. Doing comedy in comics is like pretty difficult because like both of those things are very reliant on like immersion and pacing. And those are things that are a real skill to control in comics. So it's it's always fun to see how people handle the different – a story in a different medium and, and – uh, it's weird to think about like, well, what would this adaptation be and what would right. this be? And I think that's harder than it looks to having done uh, a bunch of comics now. Um, it's hard enough to tell one, you know, linear, uh, you know, unbroken two hour story in a movie, but to basically tell a story where you have to have these kind of roughly evenly spaced breaks where each one ends on a dun 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 yeah. kind of moment like i don't think of my story i think of the story just as like one unbroken piece and sure. then when the time comes to break it up into issues or episodes you evenly space it out but like maybe issue three doesn't end anything on anything like an exciting moment so you have to find a way yeah. to, to reverse engineer the story to get it right there. right yeah. right matt do you but, find yourself in that kind of situation yeah for sure the fun thing i think is like looking at the ways people cheated it especially like for a lot of the like when st when comics moved away from being like one and done single issues but like i think a lot about like 
Chris Claremont's run on X-Men, like there's a lot of these cliffhangers that are fake cliffhangers where they'll just be like, there's a famous one where they're like, Cyclops is dead. And they're all standing around Cyclops and he's on the ground dead. And then the next issue, the first page is Cyclops rolling over and he's like, I'm not dead. (laughs) And it's like, it's not a real moment. It kind of reminds me of those old Republic serials where they see that the the truck would go over the cliff at the end of the 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 serial tune in next week and when you come back the guy actually swerves just in time and they, that never they just they just wreck on oh they never actually went over the cliff yeah it's re, it's really bad cheap but they used yeah. to get away with it all the time yeah yeah, yeah. It, you know it, it's fascinating to hear you guys talk about it because now you know we have so many fans who are binging you know we have marvel unlimited and there's we have almost every comic we've ever published that someone can read over like go straight through and read 700 issues of spider-man those like cliffhanger moments are almost they're important now but in 10 years because you're telling you know someone who's reading that story for the first time is coming to it in a fully different manner and different format sure i think we're in the middle of a cultural shift in some ways like the binging you talked about is obviously a different way to consume media than most people are used to but also just like if you look at the landscape of television and and film like Star Wars was anomalous because it was a franchise and that was like a thing in in serials and then stopped being a thing and then sort of the idea of the franchise sort of Star Wars brought it back in some ways but like TV didn't used to be one a season would be a story it would be you know Hill Street Blues was an episode of Hill Street Blues Law and Order was one and done and comics was the same way and we've shifted to this idea of the longer form story and you know i give comics a lot of credit for that i think like a lot of especially in tv i see sort of a lot of things where i'm like i feel like these are people who grew up on like long run of x-men or a long longer thing like that and and realize the strength of drawing out that story and finding those cliffhanger beats but it's fascinating to think about like the term gets thrown around in comics around like you people write for the trade instead of write for the single issue which you want to find a balance of but also like well, what are audiences going to be looking for? Because now I think audiences, for the most part, we can say predominantly do look for the trade. They're looking for the longer story. But like, that's because we're in a cultural shift. What is the next cultural shift going to be? And I think for a a generation, like if you talk to kids, like that they're growing up on six minutes of content. They're growing up on super short content. And it's like, are they going to want this long serialized story? Like, are we going to do... 10 minute TV shows. Yeah, Gary, you I, you know, I listen to you on Kind of Funny and, and you talk about your daughter and, and like I'm sure you watch the way she consumes media. Does that play into the how you, the way you think about the stuff that you're working on? I don't know. I think well, you know, my kid's 7 and the way the way that she consumes media I don't think necessarily is indicative of like how that will mature. Kids consume media in a totally different way. They're not they're not particularly discretionary. Like when I go to, like I go see, I have to go see all the animated movies now. Like I, I, I'll, I'll go see the Pixar ones anyway, but I also get dragged to see Trolls and things like that because my kid loves them all equally. Now I think I could confidently state that, say, Moana is an objectively better film than, say, the Emoji Movie. But at seven years old, my kid just loves them all equally. They're all they 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 push her buttons just the same way. And I don't think you know at that age your tastes are mature enough to understand the the finer degrees of of quality that exist in different kinds of films so but i mean certainly it's true that you know um i i think regardless of age now we are the you know the internet has now conditioned us to make things shorter and snappier like we're all victims i i honestly i i actually have a hard time watching movies made 
before like prior to the 1980s because just like the editorial the editorial i was watching i went back and i didn't see it either i went back and watched three days of the condor which is a fantastic movie but it's so slow yeah and back then it was okay for movies to be slow and to be deliberately paced but then mtv came along and and, and edit with editing like this and suddenly films became that like if you watch a movie like armageddon which again also a great movie i love armageddon but i don't think there's like a single shot in that movie that's longer than like three or four seconds long and that's just what we've now been conditioned to watch and so you know you still see a lot of great independent films that are kind of more kind of lugubrious in their in their more, more deliberately paced but yeah it's 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 a real fight to kind of hold people's attention especially especially over the over, over a longer longer period of time yeah, I, I think you're a big video game fan, as am I. I just finished, I rolled credits on the new Fire Emblem game, which I looked at the clock of how long my playthrough was, and I'm like, wow, that was a long time, and I stuck through it, but there were points at the end where it was like false finishes. It kept getting me, but you know, I, I love those those long-term storytelling things. I'm, I'm glad that we have them in a medium like video games. You know, I want to ask, what is your? how did you get involved with Star Wars? You were talking earlier about being a fan. How did you get involved in actually working with Lucasfilm? I just got a call from Lucasfilm. <laughs> it was it was that simple. And it came at the weirdest time because it was, this is, I'm going back to like around now 2013, 2014. I had written, or sorry, I should say co-written um, a movie for Will Smith uh, called After Earth which was a tremendous disaster at the box office and critically just slammed. And I remember thinking for a while, like, maybe I'm done. I might, you know, like, you remember Chris Cooper in Adaptation? <laughs> done with fish. Maybe yeah. I was... <laughs> 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 I always loved that. You ever saw that scene where she just said, let me get this right. You were like one of the top top tropical fish keepers in the one, one of the top experts in tropical fish for 20 years. And one day you just stopped. Why? Done with fish, and I just <laughs> yeah. so I thought I yeah. might be done as well. I thought, oh my god! Right, so I started writing my novel. I remember I might think, well, maybe I'll go back to video games. I don't know. Like I don't, I didn't know if if I could recover from being associated with such a high profile failure as that. But the next call I got was from Lucasfilm, and they had just started spinning up the new movies. I remember, I remember exactly where I was when I heard the news that Disney had bought Lucasfilm and that the Star Wars movie, this was before JJ was announced or anything. All that was announced, I think, was that something called Episode 7 would be coming, that there would be more Star Wars movies coming. And I think maybe Michael Arndt was announced at that point as one of the, as the first writer yeah, on the movie. Maybe, maybe um, yeah. I was standing in line at a Popeye's fried chicken when I saw it and I was scrolling through the news on my phone um, and, I, and I literally scroll, I literally flipped right over from like my Twitter app where I saw the news to my phone and called my agent in the line at Popeye's saying, dude, you've got to throw my hat in the ring on the Star Wars thing. And he was like, yeah, you and everybody else because of course everybody was making that same call to their agent at that time. And I still honestly, don't, I never got a straight answer as to why they picked me. There's hundreds of writers that are better qualified than me and with better credits. But they had me come in and I went to uh, visit them, and I sat with um, Kiri Hart. Kiri Hart's no longer there, but at the time she was the she was the head of uh, Lucasfilm Story Group, uh, and another executive there called Rain Roberts. And I sat in this very beautiful room, and I went in no knowing nothing about why they wanted to talk to me, and I left knowing nothing about why they wanted to talk to me, <laughs> because you know they play their cards very close to their to their chest, and you know secrecy is a, it's like I always say working at Lucasfilm is a bit like working at the CIA. It's very very secretive. Um, and they and I didn't know anything about what they wanted to. I thought maybe a, a video game or a comic book, which I which I would have been thrilled to do anything in the Star Wars universe. I remember years ago pestering the Bioware guys. I really wanted to write one of the one of the old Republic novelizations that they. I would I'd done anything. I would have been thrilled to do anything. And then a couple of days later, they sent me this like two page document, this story document for a thing called Destroyer of Worlds, which was that's what it was called at the time, and it was a story about 
the rebels who stole the Death Star plans. And it had an early version of Jyn Erso in it and an early version of K2SO. It didn't have like Cassian or Krennic or a lot of the other stuff that ended up getting fleshed out. But it was like, let's tell the story of how the rebels stole the Death Star we, plans. We're, we're recording this today, having just come from Lucasfilm. Right. And we went on a tour when we were there. I got the walk around. And on that tour, who passed us on that tour but John Knoll. John Knoll, whose original idea it was. Yes. And John is John is a legend. And I had to, and I had to go back and meet with John. And I was very nervous about that because I knew John, you know, John is a legend in, in the Lucasfilm Star Wars. What He's worked on the Star Wars films for decades. He's the chief creative officer of Industrial Light and Magic. Uh, he invented Photoshop. I mean, this guy is just, it's, it's crazy. And I had to go back and pitch him my ideas. And I think what happened was I, I basically, my idea was let's do it like an old fashioned World War II men on a mission movie. Like let's mm. do the guns and have our own in the Star Wars universe. And or let's or let's do like Zero Dark Thirty in this in the Star Wars universe. And I was making I was making the point that I felt like that Jin reminded me a lot of like the Jessica Chastain character from Zero. Like she like she knows, like in the same way that Jessica Chastain knows that bin Laden is in that is yeah. in that building in Pakistan. Jin also knows that the that the Empire's building the Death Star and she's trying to get the, the rebel leadership to listen to her and let her go on this mission. Because if they don't do it, you know, it's game over. And that was what I, that was what I pitched John. And I eventually got the job. And then they, after they hired me, they let me see John's lookbook, which he had used to pitch his idea originally to Kathy Kennedy. And it was full of references to the guns and Navarone and Zero Duck 30. So I had just, it, it just turned out I was on the same page as John in terms of what I thought the movie was. And that's how I got hired. That's and, amazing. And the, the cinematographer for Zero Duck 30 ended up doing the movie. Is that correct? Uh, yes, that's right. Greg Fraser. <laughs> right, right. Who shot... Uh, Zero Dark Thirty also shot Rogue One, and I believe now also just did uh, The Mandalorian as well. Right. Wow. wow. Yeah. In terms of that subject, that's exactly what I wanted to talk about. Was like the movies that maybe influenced you, and that might have had a uh, like uh, made you the right person to come aboard a, a Star Wars film. What do you feel like you shared in common in terms of like we talk about the guns in Navarone, or we talk about kurosawa or whoever it might have been do you feel like that that was in terms of the venn diagram of gary witta and star wars that that might have you know aided yeah you possibly i process? mean i mean th- th- those influences have played out in everything that i've done you know the book of eli is a product of the fact that i grew up loving westerns and samurai movies and then you kind of put that through a post-apocalyptic lens and that's what comes out the other end with george obviously it was flash gordon and westerns and and you know uh the hidden fortress and kurosawa and all those things and you blend them all together and you get star wars you get something totally no, but they're all the product of, you know, you, you, you can look at Star Wars and recognize, you can see the Flash Gordon references, you can see the, the Western influences, you can see the, the Japanese samurai influences, they're all, you know, very overt if you're familiar enough with film to, to know the original references. For me, yeah, I guess I, I guess I was lucky that obviously I grew up with Star Wars, and I, know, you know, I always loved Star Wars, but I never really had to kind of dig very deep and understand why it resonated with me the way that it didn't. It wasn't until I actually had to write a Star Wars movie that Gareth and I had to start kind of reverse engineering why Star It's almost kind of like you take apart like a high-performing sports car to figure out like why it works, why it goes so far. You have to kind of pick the engine apart and understand and put it back together to figure out why it works. And I did a lot of reading. I did go back. I watched all of George's student films. I watched, rewatched all of his influences. I went back and watched Flash Gordon. And even though we were making a different kind of movie, like ours doesn't really have the Jedi in it in any significant way. It doesn't really have the force in any significant way. And that they were great about it. They said, no, we want you to make a different kind of 
Star Wars movie. Make like make the war movie. Make the military rebellion versus the Empire war movie. And what interested me and what interested Gareth, and I think this is one of the things that really comes through very well in the finished film, was the idea of the shades of grey. That you know there are good guys and bad guys on the Imperial. It's not just white hats and black hats. All the rebels are good. All the Imperial guys are bad. You know there was clearly rebels that were willing. It was much it's much more like a street level mm-hmm. rebellion film. Like you realize the rebels have to do some re- pretty. They have to really get their hands dirty in service of the greater good. You've got guys on the Imperial side that recognize that they're fighting on the wrong side and, and, and want to try and do the right thing. You've got characters like Saw Guerrero who like, essentially is a terrorist, like a rebel terrorist who has gone too far and has had to be expelled from like the rebellion proper because he's a PR nightmare for, for Mon Mothma <laughs> and the rest of them. So I love the idea of showing these kind of extreme, not just the guys in the center of the, like you know, we all know the people at this, you know, around the around the conference table in the, in the rebellion, we all know the people around the conference table at like the Empire. But who are the people kind of out on the fringes of that? Who are the more you know, Krennic's an extremist, Guerrero's an extremist? Like I, I thought it was fun to kind of push those to see those characters, you know, who are out on the fringes of their mm-hmm. their belief systems. I was at Star Wars Celebration 2015 when Gareth did a panel on that Sunday. And I, I don't know if it was like undersold in like the schedule or something, but the room wasn't as full as I completely expected it to be. At that point, it was April 2015, so I think they were getting ready to go into production, and they showed the teaser. Yeah, the little Death Star yeah, thing that like they put started. Together. It was almost yeah, yeah, like a yeah. helicopter shot over yeah. this forest, and then it, the the music kind of. Like yeah, it was like a TIE fighter, and then you yes. come up and see the Death Star. And you yeah, see I the Death Star that. just like over, which top was something of this the planet. ILM just bashed together just right. for that <laughs> right. for that event. Yeah, right. Um, but that whole experience and then getting you know so excited for that movie and then seeing what it ended up being was like such a unique and different experience. And and Matt, we were in the car from Lucasfilm to here. We were talking about Rogue One. We were talking about all of these different things. In terms of like any story you're telling, we're talking about the world of Star Wars. Matt, you've written Star Wars comics. Can you feel like any story that you've told, Gary, any story that you've ever told in any media, you can, if if someone pointed to this story and said, what were the pieces of media that influenced you on this? What were the novels or what was, could you give an answer to that? Or is it just as much, well, I went through a breakup and it was that, you know what I mean? I feel like for me, a lot of times when I work on stuff, like it's, Less a specific, like, there are moments I can see where I'm like, oh, I'm very much, like, nodding to this film or this this book or whatever. I spent a lot of time either looking, at, like, thinking and looking at art or listening to music. So it's not so much a, a concrete one-to-one, something that's less narrative. And I spent a lot of time, this is a very pretentious answer, but, like, sort of chasing moods. Like, that's a big guide for me is, like, in some ways, like I know a lot of writers who like listen to movie scores and then they're like, I write to a movie score and I'm like, if I write to a, the score of Star Wars, I'm going to write like Star Wars. If I write to the score of Indiana Jones, I'm going to write like Indiana Jones. But I'll find a, a different song, like a, a something else and, and think about the way it makes me feel and be like, why and chase that or like a painting or a sculpture. So like it's very weird and abstract for me in the way it works. But also at the same time, like there is obviously a lot of just like, well, I I love Star Wars or I love Wes Anderson or I love Kurosawa or like whatever it is and being like, this is a sort of loving nod to that. But overall, like a big thing for me is like sort of tone and mood and how do you how do you get to an emotional place? Yeah. Gary, I'm I'm glad that we got to talk about The Last Jedi adaptation because for me, that is everything a film to comic book adaptation should be. I, I want to 
talk about my favorite part of that, uh, those six issues, which was uh, Luke's force projection and then Luke's death. Oh, his final final words, which was incredible. And that I was a big. That was a big. That was that was a big thrill for me. And I never got a chance. I, it's funny. I was as Michael would deliver pages to me. I'd get so excited by Michael Walsh. As Michael Walsh, the artist, would send me pages. I would text them to Ryan and say, look, look, look what we did with your thing. And he would, and he would write back, oh, this is so cool. He was really excited about it. But I was always nervous about any time that I had deviated from his story because I didn't, and, I, and again, the, the, I mean, the rules were very specific anyways. Like you can't just go off and tell a completely different version of The Last Jedi. You have to adapt the story that Ryan wrote. And again, I wouldn't, I, I think that Ryan told a really interesting, ballsy, challenging story. But again, there were little things that I would tweet either because again the medium medium demands that I change yeah. something or just my personal taste as a fan. I would I would tweak this or that, and so I would tweak little things. And I never sent Ryan that final page because I was worried that like <laughs> again in a comic and this is a perfect example in a movie Luke fading out and becoming one with the Force with the music. It doesn't need any words. It's just music and the, the, the everything swelling up and that you know the the emotion kind of takes you and it's not had there been any kind of like for example i like the i like the quote-unquote voiceover that i wrote for luke in those final moments if you put that into the movie it would be so cheesy right, right. but in a comic book you kind of need it can't just be these silent panels of luke fading out you've got to there's no music or anything to accompany it so you've got to give it something maybe this is my opportunity to write luke skywalk's canonical final words and <laughs> who's to say they're not because yeah. I'm, I'm writing what's in his head yeah. in the film those might very well be the words that are in his head. You don't know, but you yeah. know now because I wrote them into the comic. And I just love, anytime I could do a little callback, I loved it. And so when Luke finally fades out and comes in with the Force, and he talks about taking a step into a larger world, and that being the very first thing that Luke, that, that Kenobi taught him when he first connected with the Force, you've taken your first step. That just felt like a very beautiful full circle moment for me. And and I was I was very pleased with myself for, for, for coming up with that. <laughs> yeah. But I'm but I also it's also the kind of thing that you worry about showing to the original author of the work and him feeling oh you uh, do you feel like this needed improving or something like you feel like I left <laughs> right, 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 right. it was it was just it was just the case of like the comic book and I, I I admit I got a little bit choked up writing it I was really I was really pleased with how I got it a little came choked out. up reading it and it also feels like a really bold choice to say like oh there's more to this story that the like right. there's a lot packed in those two lines and you can it can be read as just like oh this is a callback to the Kenobi line but it also obviously has so much more in terms of like I what mean, it says of moving you forward. know knowing knowing the rules of the Star Wars universe as we now do mm -hmm. when Luke dies even before anything was known about nine I'm sitting thinking that's not the last you're seeing of this character he's going to be if he's not back in nine as a ghost what are we even doing yeah. <laughs> and so I kind of felt like you know, suggesting that you know taking the first step into a large, taking the first step into a larger world was again just a, a nod towards yeah he's not, he, and, and, and Luke says it right no one's ever really gone of course especially not the Jedi who can come back and we know that Mark's in nine in whatever form that might be uh, I, it just kind of felt like it's you know it's a nice way to 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 kind of uh, suggest that yeah he's he's gone but he's not gone yeah yeah. yeah. Uh, all right. Last thing, I want to give you an opportunity to uh, to let people know about your Twitch channel because uh, you did something cool with the Book of Eli. Yeah. Recently, I uh, I had a I used to have a Twitch channel. I used to play PUBG on it. I was terrible at PUBG, and I and I stopped playing and I stopped broadcasting on Twitch. But I still had the channel. I just didn't use it. And then what happened was I always wanted to do because they, they we never did it when the Book of Eli came out on DVD, Blu-ray, all that kind of stuff. It has all kind of special features on it, but it doesn't have any kind of commentary track from the directors, uh, from Alan Albert, from Denzel, from me. No, nothing. There's no commentary. And I love commentary tracks. And for the longest time, I thought maybe I'll just record one as an MP3, put it out there. 
and people can just kind of like sync it up with the movie and you can have the movie play, turn the volume on the movie down a little bit and just play it play it on your phone or whatever and you can kind of like kit bash your own commentary track together but it always kind of felt like a lame way to do it and then when ne- and when netflix finally dropped the movie uh recently it that that you know because everyone who who doesn't have netflix right now it's finally available to the widest possible audience so well now's the time to do the commentary track and it just occurred like twitch is bigger than ever maybe if i did it as like a live interactive thing as a live stream and people could ask me questions in the chat and it would be like a it'd be like an interactive thing and then you can still download it and, and watch it you know off uh, off stream and you know if you weren't able to watch it live you can you can just find the uh, it's on youtube you can find the youtube video sync it. there's a little time code on it so you can sync it up with the movie and and watch along and it ended up being really interesting uh but through the whole process of just getting that one stream together and trying to figure out how to make my webcam and my microphone work and things like that I, just as a hobbyist and uh it's 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 you know it's not my day job it's a it's a i know people that are professional full-time twitch streamers and it's a fascinating career to have for me it's much more of a it's just a hobby that puts a little bit of pocket money in my pocket and it's it's i don't leave the house i'm a homebody (laughs) and so social media and twitch is 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 a great way for me to have like a social outlet and and to connect with people without having to go anywhere yeah the book of eli uh, aspect i thought was really cool so guys check that out twitch.tv slash gary winner you got it gary thanks for being here thanks for having me this was fun Thanks for tuning in to this bonus episode of This Week in Marvel. Be sure to check out our most recent full episode where we did a deep dive into the history of Marvel Star Wars comics and spoke to artist Will Sliney about all the Star Wars goodness he's been working on lately, including the brand new Star Wars Rise of Kylo Ren comic and so much more. Stay tuned for all the exciting Star Wars content coming your way in the lead up to the release of Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker on December 20th. But until then, I'm Ryan and this is Marvel, your universe. Your universe.